Welcome to Life in the Front Office today. I'm your host, Jay Kirschman, and today I've got Jeff Idelson, president of Cooperstown and the National Baseball Hall of Fame, along with Pat Gallagher, a longtime friend and co-host as well. Gentlemen, how are you guys today? It's great to be here. See, we're both so happy to be with you, Jake. We're just like stepping over each other. I know, I know. (laughs) Well, today we want to talk about Jeff's story, uh, one that's got a lot lot of lessons to be learned from. Um, We talked last week with Steve Brenner and Fred Clare about the Dodgers and PR and Shocker, today we actually have another story about PR and and public relations, but uh, a little bit different. You know, Jeff started as a vendor, and and I think he can kind of take the rest of the story from here, and and Pat can jump in um, with his experiences with Jeff as well. Well, let let me jump in and say, Jeff, what did you sell as a vendor? What did they have you selling? Well, the beauty of uh, growing up in Boston and uh, being at Fenway Park is – uh, they could take you at a young age. So I started when I was 15. And uh, the flip side is that is that, you know, in April when it's 40 degrees and, uh, you know, kind of like at the stick, you're trying to sell Pepsis and, you know, nobody wants to drink Pepsi. And then you're selling uh, popcorn and they're blowing out of the funnels. But uh, as you <laughs> go up the ladder, things got better. So popcorn, ice cream, uh, sodas. If you got lucky, you got hot dogs. And uh, we didn't do beer in the stands at Fenway. We had enough problems. So beer was only uh, done at the concessions. And so you were you were you know doing this while you were going to school, right? Yeah, I did this in high school and in college both. And uh, you know, Pat, probably like you, I mean, baseball is in my blood from such a young age. My parents instilled in me a great love of the game, and you know, I just I always wanted to be at the ballpark. That's just how I was wound, and you know, vending was a great way to get there. And so, but you transitioned, and you started where a lot of people uh, start in the business, and it's. It's, you know, this is one of the reasons why Andy, Fred, and Jake and I started this is that for people who are, you know, either in the business, thinking about the business, but you started as, a, as an intern um, after your vending career was over, right? Yeah, I did. I went to, uh, I went to a small D3 school, uh, Connecticut, Connecticut College in New London, Connecticut, that, um, I mean, they didn't even have a baseball team. I started a club baseball team there. They didn't have, they didn't have PR degrees back then. I majored in international economic theory. You see, I'm doing a lot with that. But <laughs> really, you know, really the uh, message that I impart upon kids who are in college today or, or, uh, and are looking to get into the job market or thinking about sports is, you know, from my perspective, as someone who hires, I really don't care what you major in. If you go to school and uh, you're, first of all, if you're passionate about what you're doing and you go to school, you go to school to learn how to think, you go to school to learn how to write, you go to school to learn how to problem solve. If you can leave school with those three assets and be passionate about the game of baseball, you know, you can find a place for you. And I think that's an important lesson because kids feel like they've got to go in a certain direction. And I just don't believe that's true. So yeah, I left, uh, I was at, uh, you know, Connecticut college and I wanted to work. Uh, I, you know, I heard about the Red Sox needing maybe one intern or, you know, at that point there was just like, you know, kind of called free help. And I went into the PR guy there. His name was Dick Bresciani, great guy who 
come out of UMass uh, Amherst and uh, had a, a sport management degree. And I went into his office as a 21-year-old and sat down with him. I knew nothing about PR. I didn't even really know what it was, uh, but I learned before I went into his office. And, you know, I remember him asking me, like, you know, if I if I said the name Roger Moret, what would that mean to you? And I said, well, he went 14-3 and three in 1975 and, you know, came out of the Dominican Republic and, you know, great right-hander and really helped that club get to the World Series against Cincinnati. And, and that was enough. He could tell I was passionate, and I got lucky, and that's how I got started. Good. So what kinds of stuff did they have you working on as an intern in PR for the Reds? Well, well, back then, I mean, it wasn't a digital world. Pat, I know you know that, but kids listening today may not really fully understand that. <laughs> and so the uh, Xerox, which is the thing that uh, makes copies of, of your uh, papers, I mean, that the Xerox repairman was like the closest guy the, the closest friend I had in the organization because our copier jammed all the time and I was the copy boy. So I, you know, do making a lot of copies, working on game notes. Um, they had me uh, do post game notes, which was great. Um, you know, work in their um, archive a little bit in terms of organization, working with the media, working on the media guide, just at a very, at a very cursory level. I was in charge of the minor league report, which we put out every night. Um, I would pull, I would pull stats because this was back in the day when, Again, not everything was available to you on a uh, – well, there weren't really – there weren't computers. So I'd go and pull stats uh, down from Elias and House Sporting uh, House Sports Data, provide them to our manager. And I just I, – I could not think of a better place to be than at the ballpark. I hated leaving. Well, and it's – you know, you were in what a lot of people consider the best ballpark. And uh, so tell us how you went from the, um, from the Red Sox to the Yankees. How did that happen? <laughs> Johnny yeah, Damon funny. style. Yeah, it's kind of funny when you uh, – you know, I grew up hating the Yankees. I mean, when you grow up in Boston, I mean, you know, the number one enemy is the Yankees. And, you know, Bucky Dent was like the uh, my antithesis. He was the antagonist in my life growing up as 13 year old. He's the one that hit the home run that sent them to the playoffs in 1978 when uh, we 14 years old when the Red Sox didn't make it. And um, so I'm working in Boston and I'm you know trying to find a full time gig in baseball and at that time, the Red Sox didn't have anything, and so I would send my resumes around and have some help and uh, from our PR team. And I vowed I'd go to any of the 22 other teams other than the Yankees because I just could not fathom the thought of going to the Yankees. And sure enough, what ends up happening is uh, in the uh, fall of 1988, the assistant PR jobs in Baltimore and New York both opened. And uh, I applied for both and had a great interview down in – in Baltimore with Calvin Hill, who was running um, business operations back then, the, the, the Dallas Cowboy former uh, star. And yeah. uh, I went to New York and had a great interview in New York. And there was a guy out of Detroit who applied for both positions who had a bit more experience than I do. And so what happened was he got offered both slots and whichever one he turned down, I was going to end up with. And I was really loving Baltimore, but so was <laughs> this guy. So I ended up in New York and actually it ended up being the best thing that could have possibly happened to me. It was a great, great run with the Yankees. You know, to be a PR guy for the Yankees, not just the players, but to work for or around one of the, you know, I guess one of the, you'd have to call him a pioneer, but one of the most controversial owners uh, ever in that, during that area, George Steinbrenner. What, what, do you have any, do you have a quick George Steinbrenner story? A quick one? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, it's funny. So I go to New York and I'm, look, I'm pretty comfortable in my own skin. Um, you know that Pat and so I go to New York and I you know I go as the assistant PR guy I'm 24 years old and I get there and uh, you know after the 88 season and early 89 we're getting ready to go to spring training and I'm not going I'm staying behind and 
we have this uh, kind of send-off party with a couple of the coaches, you know, cocktail party down in New York City. And Mr. Steinbrenner's there. And so I, of course, walk up to him and uh, I introduce myself to him. And I say, Mr. Steinbrenner, my name's Jeff Idelson. I just want to say hello. I'm your new assistant PR guy. And he puts both hands on my shoulders, Pat, as he did so often with people. And he said, so good to have you aboard, young man. You must be the young man from Detroit. I said, no, sir, I'm the young man from Boston. He said, that's great. I get three words of advice for you, son. And I said, what's that, sir? He said, Brent, don't buy. <laughs> <laughs> and that is how I met George Steinbrenner. <laughs> and did you rent? Well, you know, 22000 a year living in Manhattan, I could barely afford an apartment to rent. So, yeah, I rented. it. <laughs> Oh, Jeff, but, I, I gotta, I gotta ask. I mean, going from PR to where you are now, and and similar to Pat's background, you know, he was on the marketing side, but Fred's background was in PR. We talked to Steve Brenner; he started in PR. Bill Schumard started in PR. You know, Derek Hall, president of Diamondbacks, who who we'll talk to hopefully here soon uh, on an upcoming podcast, started in PR. What's the common theme among PR that, that makes people so successful? And maybe what were some of the skills that you learned along the way? Um, and Pat can kind of chime in on this as well, that, that really helped you get to that leadership position. Well, I think um, this isn't to say that other parts of an organization don't have this, but you're pretty, when you're a PR guy, you're in the middle of everything. And if you've got any kind of air of humility and transparency, um, that carries a lot of weight in the world and you end up, uh, you know, you end up with a lot of friendships. You end up being able to, uh, you know, make part, you end up being able to connect people. You end up speaking, you know, learning to promote your organization uh, in a very good way. And I think at the end of the day, uh, when you look at your, your leaders of organizations and your top professionals, you know, they're people that you, you, that are there who are, adept at, uh, you know, selling the product. Uh, and I think uh, that's important. And, you know, you look at great leaders and, you know, I don't know how you feel, Pat, but I think that's probably a reason PR guys and marketing guys end up going in the direction they do. Well, I think the communication skills that you're, you know, you're able to, that you bring to a PR job, but that you're able to develop and hone as you go through, I think those things, they, they certainly will apply to, to really any business or any, any, any sort of a role. But, I think that you're right. You get a chance to to sort of see everything. You get a chance to um, while while you're promoting your organization, you also you know you also get to see the good and the bad. And and I would always say, no, baseball is such an interesting uh, industry that you know you, you never get cocky in baseball. You, you might you might think that you are, but it has it has a way of humbling you. Um, and also lifting you up, but um, but would you d describe a little bit, Jeff, about how you went from uh, from the Yankees? How did the how did the whole Cooperstown? I mean, going from the, one of the biggest cities in the country to one of the tiniest cities in the same state. Uh, t tell me about tell me about that. Well, it's a good question, Pat. And I, you know, I, I kind of with the Yankees, I was there for five years, and I, I loved it. And um, it's a grind in New York. It's a grind in most places today, but back then, especially in New York with Mr. Steinbrenner and just the massive amount of media. And, you know, as I was approaching the age of my late twenties, I just, I, I was ready to do something different. It was, it was just exhausting. I was on every road trip for five years and I wanted to do something new. So actually before I, before Cooperstown, 
I took a 10 month hiatus and uh, not a hiatus, but I, I stepped out of baseball and went to work for the world cup uh, soccer tournament. Pat, you know all about it. Cause we were up. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and I decided I wanted to get involved with the world cup. And, you know, I remember Mr. Steinbrenner saying to me, Oh, you're going to hate it. I mean, it's just nothing like baseball and you know, you can't leave and you know, you're making a mistake. And this is just before they went on their run. This was in 93. Um, but I was ready for something different. And, uh, Going to the World Cup ended up being great. I knew nothing about soccer, zero. But what I, uh, what was great is that I built their, I ended up building their intranet site because the internet didn't exist at that point other than being a government tool, but was close to emerging. So by going to the World Cup, I learned something new. I got involved in a massive international event where you went from having, you know, 200 people at opening day and maybe 20 camera crews to credentialing 7,000 media from 191 countries having a broadcast audience of a billion and being on the air 24 seven for a month. I mean, it was a whole different thing. And my job was to build their, their internet presence or internet presence that connected the nine venues and FIFA in Switzerland and U S soccer, which was in Chicago at the time with the uh, uh, training facilities in mission Viejo. So I got uh, all of a sudden I'm learning about uh, how to build a, a website and uh, I content built all the content out, you know, content was my experience from being in baseball and writing, writing bios and promoting players. So I did that, not knowing where I'd go next, um, and it was really valuable, really valuable experience. And so while I'm at World Cup, I know we're going to have our tournament. Now it's the spring of 94, and the tournament's going to come and go, and I'm going to be left without a job if I don't start thinking about it. And so I'm talking to uh, UMass, Amher University of Massachusetts Amherst about maybe becoming an assistant AD for communications. I like the idea of going, trying something at the college level where I could be educational with kids or do, doing something a little different. And out of the blue, I get a call from a guy named Bill Guilfoyle, who, Pat, you probably remember. Yeah, he's a great, great, a great gentleman. Bill was an unbelievable gentleman, and he was the head of PR for the Hall of Fame. And Bill had been with the Yankees from 1960 to 69 as assistant PR with Bob Fischel during the whole Mantle Maris race. And then he went to the Pirates as the head guy from 70 to 79, and he had Clemente in 3,000 hits. And he called me up one day, and he's like, you know, I want to hire someone in PR, and your name keeps coming up any interest so you know i honestly had never been to cooperstown growing up in boston you tend to go north and south when you vacation to the mountains or the beach you don't go west and as big as baseball fans as my parents were i had never been to cooperstown so i came up with my then wife and had a really nice visit and i thought my god this reminds me of new england it's gorgeous it's a town of 1800 with one stoplight and you know in baseball you're just going 24 7 non-stop and world cup was another level up from that energy wise and i thought I'm going to do this for a year. I'm going to just like slow my life down. I'm going to try this and try and do some uh, proactive PR as opposed to reactive PR. Then the strike came and now I'm thinking, okay, now I got to promote a museum without an industry. And so <laughs> I started, I, I came to, I, so I'm here. I am at the world cup in July trying to decide what I want to, you know, where I, what I might do. I was also talking to the devils and move Amarillo. And so I finally decided on my 30th birthday uh, in June to, take the hall of fame job that had been offered to me. And so I did. So tournament ends and I come up to Cooperstown in September and start working for a museum uh, in the middle of the strike. Well, it's, you know, and I have to put a plug in for any of the listeners about the national baseball hall of fame in Cooperstown. Uh, I've described it to, I've been up there half a dozen times and I've been fortunate to be there on a couple of the induction weekends when, at least in my case, when Orlando Cepeda was inducted 1999 and a few years later when our broadcaster Lon Simmons was inducted, which is, and it was described to me uh, by a, a player 
he said, you know, for a spectator, for a baseball fan, it's one thing. But if you're a player, he said it's like being in baseball heaven. I mean, you're, you're, uh, uh, you know, you're around now the people who you probably would, would expect to see um, in heaven, even though some of them maybe didn't deserve to be in heaven. But, but in terms of just how you feel in the small town feel, all the things that are good about baseball. It's, it's, so maybe, maybe you can wax poetic a little bit about, the, about what makes the Hall of Fame so special. Well, Cooperstown is a is a gorgeous little town, as you said, Pat. It's a town of 1800. We have one stoplight made famous by James Fenimore Cooper, American novelist, and it's hard to get to. I mean, you know, we're not off the highway. I mean, you, you gotta, you have to want to come to Cooperstown. And I think, uh, much like the journey for the players, difficult journey for visitors compared to what you're used to. And when you get here, I think perhaps part of that is what makes it a little more sweet. It really is. It's, it's like stepping into a Norman Rockwell painting. I, I often said early on when I moved here, I felt like driving into town. If I closed my eyes and opened them, I'd expect everything to be in black and white. It's just it's just throwback. But yeah. uh, everything is baseball. It's one, you know, you got one light on Main Street and we're in the middle of Main Street. And, you know, it's this little tiny town with the Baseball Hall of Fame right in the middle of it. And virtually all of the retail stores are baseball and everything is just baseball. So it's almost like you know, you went to Willy Wonka's castle, except it was all baseball. And for the Hall of Famers to come here and players, you know, the pantheon of it all is just enormous. And the museum itself is dedicated to the entire history of the game. It's not a lot of people think it's just a gallery of plaques, but, you know, it's a 60,000 square foot museum that pays tribute to all of baseball. But to get into the Hall of Fame is so difficult, so prestigious. One percent of those who uh, ever wear a major league uniform as a player make it there that for those players themselves, um, you know, there's not a lot of separation. There's a lot of greatness. And um, I often say there's a fine line between, um, um, well, there's a fine line between um, like arrogance and humility. And, you know, for these guys, um, you know, they confidence and arrogance is what I mean. There's a fine line between confidence and mm -hmm. arrogance. And for me, for a player to be that good for that long speaks more about confidence than arrogance. And I think that's what you see here is very little arrogance and just a lot of guys of in in awe of each other. Oh, and Jeff. Well, you know, Jeff, you, you talk about. Go ahead. Yeah, you talk about all of the Hall of Famers, but there's also probably another component to every one of your summers. I unfortunately was not able to be one of those 12 year olds, 11 year olds that came out and played in the tournaments out there. But maybe talk about uh, the the summer activities you've got going on there with thousands of kids. Right. Well, the uh, yeah Cooperstown as renowned for its uh, youth baseball as well. And that's uh, been an explosion in the last 20 years, but Hall of Fame itself doesn't run any, run any of the camps, but uh, there's one down, uh, you know, one not far from the museum that brings in uh, 104 teams of 12 year olds every week for 13 weeks and, you know, tournament style play. And uh, there's two other camps as well. So there's just so many kids playing youth baseball from here that the, the, the feeling is like, not only is, is the setting pastoral, but the feeling is all baseball. And this camp down the, uh, down the street from us called Dreams Park, um, you know, you walk into any major league clubhouse now, Pat, you walk into your, your, your clubhouse at, uh, at the Oracle, and I would guarantee you that at least half your players went through it. So it's a high showcase tournament, and we get a lot of fun players and parents who come through with the players. And all in all, it's just, it's just quite a scene here in Cooperstown in the summer. So, you know, you have it, what struck me is that you have the, you know, the, the guys that, are, that were the top, the top level in their sport 
And, you know, nobody can do it forever. Now they're, they're not playing anymore. And then if they're fortunate, they get selected to come to the hall of fame. But it, 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 in my experience being up there, the, the, the it, their personalities, the people don't change, but the way that they think about the game and, and the emotion they have describe, I mean, you're, you're there when you get to, to call guys and tell them that they've been selected. Tell me what that's like. Yeah, uh, it's enormous. I still don't believe it. Uh, you know, uh, my job is to be on, you know, on television making the announcement. And uh, our chairman, Jane Clark, makes the call to these guys. And I used to do it for a while in the 90s and early 2000s. And it's, it's enormous. And, you know, George Brett in 1999 just couldn't believe that the you know, he's broke down crying on the call. He's like, I, you know, for, ahead of time, he said, you know, look, I really am not expecting this call. I'm like, you're George Brett. You won batting titles in three decades. You have 3,000 hits. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, but I'm not the guys that are in there, and that's how they feel. Wade Boggs in 05, uh, you know, when he went in, I worked with Wade in Boston and New York. You know, he gets the call from Jack O'Connell from the writers, and he doesn't believe that he's a writer. He puts They put on Jane, and he doesn't know who Jane is. So then they put me on the phone. I said, Boggsy, you're in. He's like, really? I mean, they <laughs> just don't believe it. And Jim Tomey had a hard time getting his head around it last year. And this is a guy who had 612 home runs. So the emotions run deep when they get the call. And then when they have to give that speech in July, oh, my God. I think that's when the culmination and understanding that, uh, oh, my goodness. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I've had this kind of career. All these, I guess I am retired. And you have 50,000 people in front of you and 60 living legends behind you. I think it really hits you then. But it, so this is the most exclusive sort of baseball club in the world. I mean, it, it really is. And all the guys that are members, when they come, you know, how, how do they, they, they always love going back. What makes it, what makes it so special? I mean, what, why do guys want to come they back? They do love coming back, Pat. It's unbelievable. And, you know, the fact that we get, you know, we have 70, we now have like 75 living Hall of Famers. And the fact that we get, you know, almost 90% of them, come, 90% of them to come back. And you understand how hard that is having run events for so long at your ballpark. I mean, they love coming back. I mean, they love the town. They love seeing each other. The home runs get a little longer. The pitching gets a little faster. Uh, guys who are out become safe and the other way around. They just appreciate each other's company. And also these are guys who all did it at a certain level. So they all can relate to being great at what they do. And then you throw in the fan component and just how grateful the fans are for these guys. It's not like, it's not like being in a city, like a major league city. It's very different feel, but there's a respect and reverence that allows these guys to somehow feel very comfortable uh, coming back to Cooperstown for a weekend. I'm very proud to do so. So, so let's, let's talk about, let's kind of shift gears a little bit. And, you know, the, you, you said it before, the baseball hall of fame, is not in New York city. It's not in a big, a big city and it, it's in a small town. So getting people to come up there to visit is, is a challenge, but, um, but how do you tell the story of the hall of fame? And I know that you've, maybe you could talk a little bit about some of the technology that you're using to sort of, I mean, spread the hall of fame to people who, you know, who, who it may not be realistic for them to make the journey there. How, how do you look at that? Well, the great thing about us is, uh, and if you're in the PR communications world, you understand that the content is king. My goodness, I don't think we could ask for any more content. Uh, you know, not only do we have 
not only do you go from, you know, as a PR guy, I'm thinking, okay, when I'm with the Yankees, I've got the players, I have how we play. I've got Yankee Stadium and the history of Yankee Stadium, you know, and that, and you have your your alumni, you know, that are your retired players, and that's kind of like what your your marketing stuff is. Come up here, and it's the entire history of the game as it unfolds on the field, but it's also the Negro Leagues and the Women's League and how baseball interacts with culture. And we, you know, we're uh, we could talk about promoting. Uh, you know, I had John Fogarty up here on the 25th anniversary of Center Field and baseball in the movies, and we honored Homer Simpson for one episode and the Simpsons on it. You know, all the years of it, and. Uh, so content is big. And then the technology helps a place like us that's so far remote, as you said, Pat. And, uh, you know, traditional social media channels are big for us. I mean, uh, social media, we're, we're big in, you know, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, um, and, of course, our website. But more importantly for us, uh, the concept of digitization has been really, really huge because it's helped the museum on a number of levels. First of all, in terms of conserving and preserving the massive amount of artifacts we have as, as, as photos and three-dimensional pieces are digitized, it allows us to handle them less. Then it allows fans to be able to interact with us and see our collections from home and, and down the line start to build their own museums online if they like using our collections and truly get a sense of what we have here in Cooperstown. Well, so it, it, only a small percentage of all the artifacts that you have um, are, are on display. Um, how do you, what do you see as the future you know, for that? Well, you know, the percentage of artifacts we have on display is larger than most museums. Um, we're probably somewhere around 15 percent, 17 percent. You know, you take you take the De Young Museum, they're probably 10 percent. Most major museums are, you know, 8 to 10 to 12 percent in that range. So we're, we're, we're high. But, yeah, there's a lot that doesn't get seen. And that's the beauty of digitization. You know, we also have active loan programs with probably 30 other museums and history centers going on all the time. Uh, we're constantly looking to do other external exhibits to, and bring our collections on the road. Um, so the other, the, the other part of it is that museums only put out a portion of their collections at a time in large part because you're charged with uh, preserving and conserving these things in perpetuity. So everything has a shelf life and things have to go to sleep for a while. So um, uh, you know, di di digital and loans help us really extend our collection, but a lot of what we have is out. Jeff, do you do you envision and Andy would have probably bring this up if he was on the episode, but you know, AR, VR, whatever R, you know, PR we're talking about, but do you see any of that type of technology taking uh, effect in, in your world? And then um, what are maybe your thoughts and Pat can chime in on this as well of kind of where baseball is going and, and the future of it? Well, for us as a museum, it, it technology is is, is, is challenging because it changes so rapidly, as we all know, and with how people consume data and consume information changes. And, you know, museums just don't have the resources that necessarily uh, larger companies and for-profit companies do to constantly be upgrading technology. So we're really careful with where, where and how we integrate technology. Um, we have a new theater we just opened this year, which is great. Brand new welcome film. Um, uh, but, but part of being able to do that was, uh, going to Dolby in San Francisco and asking them to donate audio, which they did. Um, sorry about that. Uh, getting uh, Christie projectors out of LA to help donate, you know, the projection um, and and film, but we're able to do it with help like that. So we have to be careful, I guess. And I guess for you, Pat, it's probably different in the in the uh, for-profit sector. Well, it, it is sort of, and I think 
you know, how does technology, sort of the technology, going to change the sport? I, I, I have some thoughts about it, at least in baseball. I mean, the beauty of, of baseball is, and I, you know, I'm not sure why this is, but, you know, the basic dimensions of the game, the basic rules of the game really ha- haven't changed as everything has sort of changed around it. I mean, there's some magic still to, you know, 60 feet, six inches, you know, from that a pitch ball goes to home plate. There's, you know, the distance for some reason of 90 feet uh, from base to base. And even with the, with the development of athletes over the years has somehow seemed still to be perfect. The one I think is going to be really interesting coming forward. And maybe you can, you can tell me what you think about it. Is I do think technology in terms of assisting uh, the running of the game, um, we, we already have uh, sort of a replay that helps, uh, that helps umpires, and and I think I think it has proven to be um, a good thing. Um, I think the umpires, the umpires I've talked to, who initially probably were skeptical and were maybe against it, now look at it as as a way that says it really shows how good umpires really are. But I do think the one thing that is going to happen, I, I'm sort of predicting it, is technology helping to as an assist for the calls of balls and strikes, uh, the strike zone. I mean, the technology exists to make that happen. I know there'll be a, a huge cry for, you know, from traditionalists about it, but I do think it's happening. You know, you've got stadiums now, ballparks with these massive video capabilities. Um, a, a, any thoughts about that, Jeff? Yeah, it's, you know what? It's, it, you're right. It is a balancing act, Pat, and I, I do agree with you that baseball's headed that way. Um, I'm with you. I think that when uh, – the explosion came in like the early to mid nineties with the advent and cameras, television cameras. And I mean, I, I just, I remember all of a sudden when, we're, when ESPN came around and you're doing game, you know, you're doing their game. All of a sudden it was like, my goodness, you can see everything and you could see things up close. I never, you know, you never thought you could see before you could see a mole on a guy's face. He didn't know he existed, you know, that kind of stuff. And if I'm an umpire, and their success rate is phenomenal. I think you, you, you said that. I mean, they really are probably 97, 98, 99% right all the time anyway. I mean, who the heck wants to be second-guessed? If you get it wrong, you get it wrong. And uh, so I think I agree. I, I, know, I, I know I agree with you where the umpires, by and large, are okay with it. And I think, um, I think that, that they'll, they'll resist balls and strikes. I think it is going that way. Um, you know, at the end of the day, you don't want my, my fear is you just don't want it to become the game to become so mechanical that there's not much strategy involved or the strategy gets so, so defined that it becomes uninteresting. And I think that's the fear. Well, I think that baseball will, you know, takes that into consideration. I think some people say even with the, you know, with the video replay, I mean, it's taken away, you know, managers arguing and getting thrown out of the games. It's sort of taken that maybe that element out of it. Um, but, you know, the goal of an umpire is to get the call right. And so whether you talk to your colleagues or you refer to some technology, I, 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 the reason why I think it is coming is I, I was skeptical about it, but I saw how it's changed um, the, the spectator experience of professional tennis. And if you've ever been to a professional tennis match and you can see now how instantaneously you can see whether a ball is in or out of uh, a call, and what it does for the crowd reaction, um, it's, it's hard to visualize now, but, uh, you know, it, it, technology is not going to take over this game. But I do think uh, being open to some technology that will help enhance uh, the game, the experience uh, for 
and, and and to try to get the calls right. I think that that is. Yeah, you know yeah. what? One, what? Let me just throw one other thing, and I'll shut up. One other aspect that I think would be cool. That, uh, I don't know that uh, there's probably a good reason it hasn't been done, but even though you know how it's going to sway, I don't know why there isn't an app within ballparks where when they go to replay, you can't have a, you can't have a running thing on your board where every fan can weigh in if the guy was safe or out since it takes two minutes. Now I get it. Voting process. Yes. Yeah. I mean, then you feel empowered. You feel like, Oh, wow. Well, even though my heart says, you know, uh, the Buster Posey was safe at second base, he is out. I don't know. It gives you a little interactive. It's a, it's a terrific idea. And it's one, you know, hopefully there'll be some uh, marketing people from some of the teams who will listen to this and decide, (laughs) decide, you know what? Why aren't we doing that? We should do that. Probably um, Well, if yeah, it probably if is anyone's simple. listening, I know I know we're having Bill Schlau on next week and with the Giants, so they're you know one of the most innovative teams. They might uh, pick that idea up, Jeff, especially with their new brand new video board. Yeah. Anyway, it just gets the fans more involved, even more. Sure. It's it's not only it's getting the fans involved, but it's also looking at the sort of generational appeal that baseball has i mean there's some people the critical people who say well the game is too slow or um there's not enough action you know as as a baseball fan i sort of resist that to say there's so many things to look at at any given point in time that you sort of need to know where to look but um but there is a there is pressure on the game to to try to minimize or remove some of what they call the dead time so I think some of this stuff will all contribute to uh, to that baseball's new leadership, um, which I think is, um, you know, I, th- I think I think it's positive. I know that they're looking at it, um, but um, it, it, Jeff, while we're at it, what's, so you have the Hall of Fame. Describe your relationship with Major League Baseball. What is the relationship between the two, between the Hall of Fame and um, Major League Baseball? Oh, it's a great question, Pat, because fans come to Cooperstown and rightfully think of us as a 31st venue or 31st team. They think of us as part of the family. And we are, but we're a not-for-profit. We're no different than any other 501c3, any other museum in any other city in the country. So we're independent of Major League Baseball. We don't report to them. But I report to a board of directors that has a number of owners from Major League Baseball, Rob Manford, the commissioner. Commissioner Manford's on our board. And the relationship we have with Major League Baseball is great. Uh, But that independence allows us in a lot of ways to be baseball's conscience and, you know, maybe uh, tell tell history um, without – you know, any, any partiality, not that baseball would do that, but it certainly makes it clear. And um, I know that uh, baseball is very happy with how the hall of fame, um, you know, is functioning and the relationship we have with them couldn't be better. And you have a relationship with your voting uh, with, you know, with the media, it's been over the years where they actually help, um, you know, make the selections and not only to the, you know, for the first time a player might be eligible, but then, to the, to the veterans committee who, um, you know, as time goes by, um, you know, you have a player who, who might've either been overlooked or, uh, somehow, but that's, that allows people, allows players that would be eligible to have, uh, the opportunity to be, be considered. Right. Right. You're absolutely right. The baseball writers have been involved with us since we opened in 36, uh, or since we started voting in 36 and opened in 39, they've run all of our elections. And again, 
you know, speaking of that independence, uh, we feel that's important that an independent group is who decides on the Hall of Fame. And they've done a wonderful job. And, um, you know, but the, the veterans process we have in place is a, is a court of appeals because there are it is difficult to get in. And there are times when people do slip through the cracks. So um, we, we, we lean on them to help determine who they feel may have slipped between the cracks and should get another review. Jeff, kind of. So, how do you la- kind of last question for you on on the voting process? But where do you see analytics playing a role in in the voting process and kind of the future of uh, Hall of Famers getting in, especially with all the new numbers being produced now with, with the players nowadays? And then to kind of follow that up, we talked about PR being kind of a foundation. Uh, for for young leaders, do you see that changing at all? And is it different today? And whether it's the analytics aspect of of the industry, and and Pat probably has a pulse on this as well. Um, but where do you see that that affecting the industry? Well, uh, analytics is already a part of voting. I mean, it, the analytics have always been a part of voting. I mean, batting average is an analytic, and home runs and RBIs. New analytics, very much a part of voting because uh, the voting membership you know, is becoming younger. And that's just natural that uh, that would happen. So what you want is to make sure you have an, uh, a, you know, a peer to peer review. I think there, I think that the guys who and ladies who are covering the game and voting, um, you know, give that peer review. And, and I think that as time goes on, perhaps some of the analytics we use uh, or used in the old days won't be used as much, but um, they're, they're, they're very much become a part of voting going, uh, you know, probably in the last five years, I would say. Uh, you start to see that more and more in the in the newspaper articles you read about how people are voters are making their decisions on who they're choosing. In terms of uh, leadership going forward and communications, um, you know, as the world changes and uh, the technology allows community, the, the communication is more and more through technology versus uh, through written or, or oral, um, you know, presentation. I don't think it changes. I still think you know, communication is about people and getting people to respond in your own organization and other organizations. And I still believe in, uh, fully in, uh, that uh, those that are skilled in, in have great people skills are going to make your best leaders. Pat? You know what, Jeffrey, I, uh, I was looking forward to this. To, to, you know, I always enjoy seeing you. Uh, it seems like during the baseball season, Every time there's some big event, something, you know, there's something notable that's happening. You know, I can look at the coverage and there's Jeff Idelson standing there. So I'm not sure whether you're standing there to, you know, to get, you know, to, to, to snatch a, a glove or a bat from a player that you can put on display. But I know you spend a good amount of the, of the summer um, traveling to various, uh, you know, the various ballparks. Um, and it's... Uh, that's got to be a cool part of your job. It, is, it totally is. And I, it, part of it, Pat, a lot of it is because how remote we are. And whether it's me or somebody else from the Hall of Fame being there, what's important is to, is to have a presence and also make sure the story gets told. Because whatever is happening, as soon as it happens, becomes history. And there's, an, you know, a lot of people think, especially kids, think that you know, history is really old. You know, it's Willie Mays. It's Mickey Mantle. It's, my God, Babe Ruth. History happens every day. And it's important for us to make sure that people know that um, what they're seeing and witnessing is history. And I think that's a big part of the reason that we're there to make sure those stories get told. 
Well, Pat, Jeff, I, I know we'll put this one in the book, uh, definitely for the life in the front office history. Um, but we really appreciate you having you on today. Uh, really interesting episode and, and learned a ton about variety of topics within baseball and, and Cooperstown and the Hall of Fame. Um, oh, Pat, any, any last words? Yeah, I just encourage people to go visit the Hall of Fame. It is, if you're a baseball fan, there's no place in the world like it. Um, it you'll get emotional uh, when you go there. Um, it is a nonprofit, too. So if you're looking for a place to, uh, to donate uh, to help you know, do the, finish the great work, I, I figure it's probably appropriate, Jeff, to end the podcast with a plug for the Hall of Fame. It's, uh, it's, it, it's, it's the best one. It's the best Hall of Fame. I mean, you know, not, not knocking the other sports, but uh, the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, there's no place in the world like it. Well, I... Appreciate it. It's good, kind of you to say in my, uh, I feel the same way, Pat. It is a special place. And, you know, for the, the college students who might be listening or, or high school students, uh, to just sort of follow up on, we, on what we talked about about kids is we have a phenomenal internship program in Cooperstown and check out our website if that's something that might interest you. We bring in I don't know, 20 kids a year and spend a summer in Cooperstown isn't the worst thing in the world. So uh, we're there for you. And uh, I'm so grateful for your having me in the Hall of Fame on podcast today. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Pat. And for more episodes uh, in the near future we've got bill schlau from the san francisco giants on coming on next week we're also going to be starting our 15 minute friday episodes uh with a special guest so stay tuned for those um jeff if if we can follow you on social media where would we find you uh, you can find me at hall of fame prez p-r-e-z all right so follow follow jeff and then follow us on life front office on twitter and follow us on apple podcasts leave a review leave a rating and we'll look forward to having you listen in on the next episode thanks